0: All right, today's scripture is uh, Psalm 1. So let me start. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. That yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, in all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Gary, you're you're lonely. I took a bath. <laughs> Maybe it's something else. Um, I know a lot of your hearts, minds this morning are with JL and Shelby. We're gonna spend time later in the service praying praying for them. Um, but in talking about that. Uh, but I wanted to recognize that and know that that's here. It's hurting for them and for their family and for all of us as we engage uh, with them. And uh, it's just good to be gathered here to worship and remind ourselves that God is faithful in it. Um, it's been interesting. Jeremy and I have been preparing reading the book of Ruth <laughs> um, to preach starting next week. And as you know, the Book of Ruth begins in just abject tragedy, and there's a something about that that's not accidental. <laughs> um, and so we'll, we'll start on the Book of Ruth next week, and I think it will be important for our hearts and minds as we walk over the next months with JL and Shelby. Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, then we'll finish out our rest series. O God, you declare your almighty power, chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace, that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The first time I read a John Grisham book, I was in high school. You know John Grisham? I read, or actually, I don't think I've read a single one. I've only ever listened to them on audiobook. The first one I listened to I was in high school was The Brethren, which to this day is still my favorite one. Um, But since then, and now I think one comes out every October, and I kind of like eagerly wait for it. And then by October 15th, I've already listened to it. You know, most of these are law they're, they're about the law there, and they always have these courtroom scenes, legal cases, and there's always law happening, there's always trials happening, there's always things, and he has these characters that are, that are these lawyers that he lifts up that are these exciting people, and one of the things that they do throughout most of these books is they're always building a case. They're making a case, they're collecting evidence, and they're arguing for something. Now, I'm no, I'm no lawyer. There's no trial going on here, but for the last nine months, I have been building a case for practicing Sabbath. I have amassed piles of evidence. uh, Biblical evidence, theological evidence, cultural evidence, practical evidence. This is the 15th sermon on this topic, which is a lot, I think. I've quoted lots of the Bible. We've quoted dozens of authors. I've made slides for you. And that's, this is exhibits. I've had, there's exhibits. I've been building a case. And my case has three overlapping realities, three simple over overlapping realities. Sorry, I forgot my pointer. Uh, Three overlapping realities that, that I've been arguing for. And the first one is this, that you and I were made for rest. Not rest like taking a break, stopping. Not rest the opposite of work but this positive rest that is wholeness and peace and shalom and perfection. That at the end of God's making of the world when he brings in the seventh day, God is entering into the things he has made and he's settling in. It's this Hebrew word, nuach, to to rest, to settle in. The Garden of Eden is filled every single day from first to last with God's rest. God makes his himself at home. And you know that feeling when your work is done. I told you I was built a little deck on the side of my house, and yesterday I was doing some stuff in the yard, and when I was done, I went and I sat down on my deck, and I experienced that rest. It was, there's a part of that that's in action, but there's also a part of that that's enjoying the fruit of the labor. This is what you and I were made for. We were made for this eternal life, for rest, and all of our life we spend journeying to find it. This is what we're after. We want wholeness, completeness, perfection, and we spend all of our days seeking that. Knowing that we don't have it, longing for it, hoping for it, striving after it, dying without it. So that's the first reality. We were made for this. This is what, this is who we are as humans. But secondly, the second layer of my case is that rest, this rest that we're seeking, is actually what Jesus offers. It's not the cherry on top of the Sunday. It's not a little extra. It's not side. It's not nice. It is what Jesus offers. He says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. But then he says things like this, I have come that they may have life. That's just a synonym for rest. I have come that they may have rest and have it abundantly. He says, whoever believes in me, in him, the Son, will have eternal life. You could just say rest. Whoever believes in me will have rest. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's another way of talking about rest. Seek first the rest of God, and all these things will be added to you. When he goes to, to Zacchaeus's house, remember this story in Luke, and at the end of the story he says, today, salvation has come to this house. It's another way of saying rest. He says, today, rest has come to this house. He says, unless you become like children, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. You can never enter rest unless you come like a child. This, these words in the New Testament, life, rest, kingdom, salvation, heaven, they're all the same thing. They're all talking about the rest of God. To put it in short, The shortest form, I know how, rest is the gospel. Rest is what Jesus is offering. It's what we need. It's what we want. It's what Jesus brings. It's shorthand for renewal and restoration and wholeness in our life. And it's both the path and the destination of following Christ. So we were made for this rest. Rest is then what Jesus offers. And then the third layer of my case that I've been building is this, is that Rest is actually, that rest, that salvation, that eternal life, that's available for you to taste right now through the practice of Sabbath. It's like hors d'oeuvres. You go to a wedding, you have all the hors d'oeuvres. This is what, this is what Sabbath is. It's hors d'oeuvres of the kingdom of God, of coming eternal life. When we look at our life, we all have those symptoms that we've talked about for months, being tired, lonely, anxious, We lack purpose and direction. All of those things that we're feeling in our life, a way to get the rest of Jesus into our bodies, is through this practice of of Sabbath. In other words, setting aside one out of one-seventh of your life for the sole purpose of experiencing Jesus's rest. It's available to you. 24 hours of experiencing that rest over against the unavoidable chaos and hurry and toil and angst of all of our our days. So much more than doing nothing, (laughs) Sabbath is not a day to do nothing. It's a weekly moment to enter into heaven, a weekly moment to taste how the world is supposed to be, to strive in every possible way to set one-seventh of our life aside as a way to just taste rest in heaven. I can I've, I've had some of you say to me over the course of the last number of months, you say, well, shouldn't we be receiving the rest of Jesus every day? Shouldn't all seven days be the day when we're receiving the rest of Jesus and experiencing the gospel and all of its impact? And I say, sure, but do you? Do you? Do you have enough of Jesus in your life? Is your life filled to the brim with wholeness and peace and shalom and joy? Are you completely unaffected by the storms of the world? by the pain, by the suffering, by the chaos. Are you without sin? You always follow Jesus perfectly. The reality is that your daily life is full of fractures and sin and pain. It's a dangerous, abusive world. It's full of hurry and busy. The siren song of those other gods pulling us in. Sickness and death and anxiety and And we're driven so many days by the grind of survival. (laughs) We don't live filled with the wholeness of Jesus. Our daily life militates against understanding, experiencing the rest of the gospel. And over against that, we're invited to create time only for that experience of rest and of receiving from Jesus. That's my case. And you know what happens at the end of the case? The lawyer, this is the lawyer's crowning moment, right? He stands up and he gives his closing arguments. And at this moment, he doesn't have to worry about evidence anymore. It's all been presented. All the exhibits are there. You know, most of the time there's a bunch of law rules, courtroom laws, rules about what you can and can't say. You got to stick to the facts. In the closing argument, the lawyer no longer has these rules. The lawyer gets to stand up and make his final appeal however he wants. So today, with the Sabbath on trial, you're the jury here. I'm urging you to weigh the evidence, the burden of proof, as it were. And my entire closing argument is summed up in this simple sentence that I gave you last week from Walter Brueggemann, who says, those who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. In other words, for those who set aside one day in seven to taste the goodness of Eden, the wholeness and grace of God, it flows out of that day into all the other seven days. It becomes a well springing up, right? You water your garden every so often, and that water The once-a-week watering of your yard or your garden, it flows out and you see it. Those who water their garden once a week have a different garden all seven days because the garden is being watered. And I wanted you to see this metaphor in in Psalm chapter 1. It's such a beautiful uh, way to start the Psalms. It frame out everything the Psalms are about. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night." And I want you to notice two words here that are important. The first one is blessed. It means happy, flourishing, to be counted as blessed. The person who is happy, the person who is flourishing, the person who has all that they need, is the one who follows the law. And this this word is the word Torah in Hebrew. And it usually means instruction. It can refer to the first five words of the Bible, but it can also refer to everything that God has said in his teaching. The one who is happy is the one who submits himself to the instruction of God, who meditates on the instruction of God. And then this is how it describes this, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So we, we bought our yard. There's a little uh, creek bed in the front of my yard used to be a creek that ran with water pretty consistently. Now it's just a drainage draw, and it only runs when it rains. But down in the middle of this little creek, little creek bed, there is a, a poplar tree. in you know, a tulip poplar? They get those giant, you know, rounded leaves. And it's down there, and it has four trunks. Like four trunks this big around, all coming out of the same set of roots. And the roots are like climbing in and around that little creek bed. You like look in there. You could, it's like Lord of the Rings stuff going on here. There's like roots all around, and the water, when the wa- when it rains, the water flows down, and it flows underneath the roots and through the root bed of that tree. And there's no other tree that even comes close to the size of this tree in, the entire, in my entire yard. It's huge, because it's planted next to the stream of water, right? It's rooted in the water that's there, and it yields its fruit in season. The thing is about blessedness and prospering and flourishing, is it doesn't mean there's no storms. That tree in my yard experienced every single storm the exact same way that all the other trees did. But instead of falling over, it stayed up. It flourished in the midst of that. It was resilient. It, it's joy, right? It's producing the fruit of, of life. And this is what the psalm is talking about. As opposed to the, this, the first part of the, the verse here where it talks about sitting and standing and walking, is this idea of like kind of going from place to place, looking for somewhere, looking for something, trying to find it. And over against that is the person who has planted themselves in the instruction of God, planted themselves, receiving it as water. And I give you that whole metaphor because I. A part of my closing argument here is that the Sabbath practice is one of those streams. It is a stream in which to plant your life. From which the joy and the life and the health of God flows out and permeates the rest of your life. It is a fountain, a spring, a well, whatever metaphor works best for you of where you can go to get the life and the water that will that will permeate all seven days of your life. And here's the reality of it is that You, you need the Sabbath. The Sabbath doesn't need you. Jesus says this, right? Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. This isn't about living up to some expectation. It's not about following the rules or commands or a duty. The Sabbath doesn't need you. It's not looking for you to do anything for it, to meet any requirements. But you need the Sabbath the same way you need to eat food, and drink water, and breathe air, right? if You don't drink water, eventually your insides will just wither away. And that's how many of us are, because we don't have the connection to God's rest. We neglect this practice to our own peril. It's like neglecting water. There was, um, I was trying to think of, I've thought of several good examples, but one of them was that when I was in college, I I did engineering in my undergrad, which was a bad idea, um, because I'm not really a math person, I have found out. Um, And they would always have these, like you go to class and you learn your stuff and you realize that you don't understand any of it. And so they offer these tutoring sessions. Come to this tutoring session and we'll help you do your homework. And I was like, no, I don't need that. Well, I did need that, and my grades reflected how much I should have taken advantage of that. And that's just one little example of what I think is going on here, is God is saying, come here, do, receive this practice as a way to get life into your body and life into your bones. And we say, no, I don't need that. We need it like we need water. And as we ignore that gift, we end up wandering, like the first half of the psalm talks about. And So unless you would rate your flourishing at one hundred percent, you need the Sabbath. And it will become a well of refreshment and renewal in your life. I planted two strawberry plants. I, I have a little four by eight garden bed at my other house, and I had planted one year. I planted all my different vegetables, and underneath my underneath my four tomato plants, I bought two different kinds of of strawberry plants. They're just little tiny strawberry plants like this big. And I just planted them underneath my tomato plants. And within a 12-month calendar year, those two strawberry plants had taken over the entire bed, had crawled out. I don't know if you know this about strawberry plants, but they're like an invasive species. They they have runners, and they just plant everywhere. They had gone over the sides of my bed, and were now planted in my yard. And there were just strawberries everywhere. And this is the image that has been stuck in my head about the Sabbath. Like this little this little plant of the Sabbath in your life that overflows and becomes this well of life spilling out into other, the rest of your life. And so just for the last couple minutes here, I want to do something I don't do. I don't lean lean on as as a tactic, but this is my closing argument, so I don't have to follow the rules, right? So this isn't really about theological arguments or Bible verses or even logic. I just want to share with you my, some of my, effort and struggle to practice Sabbath in the last two years. um, And the effect that it's had on me. Now caveat here, this is not me saying that I am good at practicing Sabbath. This is more like if I was telling you that I was starting to learn piano. I'm here to tell you that I learned which keys are where on the piano. That's about how far I am in, uh, in practicing Sabbath. It's very hard. My family and I, Kristen and I, the boys, we're not great at this. <laughs> we're not great at expelling anxiety and, and, and bringing gratitude and rest and sharing with one another. You come to my house yesterday, you'd see how great we are at practicing Sabbath. But we're, that's why it's called uh, practicing, right? It's a thing that you have to practice. It's, and we've been clumsily trying to do this now for, uh, in various ways, for, for about a year and a half or two years. And I want to incorporate myself and Kristen and our boys. I want them to know what this is and have the opportunity to taste this stream that runs with the rest of God. It's about practicing. I'm, a, I'm from Philadelphia. I remember when I was in middle school, the uh, Philadelphia 76ers made it to the NBA championship, and they played the Lakers, and they had a player named Allen Iverson. If you've heard of Allen Iverson, he's a very kind of flamboyant player, but there was, he, was, uh, he kept skipping practice. And so he was getting dinged for skipping practice. And the reporters would come up to him after the game and be like, Hey, Alan, we heard you skipped practice again this week. And he'd be like, Practice! Practice! We're talking about practice! Okay? And then he would walk off. He was like, Practice doesn't matter. We just want to come to the games. And they'd say, no, this is practice. We have to practice Sabbath in order to receive the rest of God. Practicing rest in ways that are absolutely impossible for six days unless we carve it out. I want to tell you five ways that the Sabbath has been changing me. The First one is this. Sabbath is changing my relationship with time. Okay, I'm not an organized person. My mom's been saying this since I was three years old. It's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're not an organized person. I'm not organized. Rhythm, routine, consistency, not, not my strong suit. Okay, I always have felt uh, in college, in seminary, in my life, with our home tasks, I feel like I'm out of out of time, behind time, or I'm missing something. You ever feel this? Like things are just slipping away. You're like not sure what's going on. and You're always just... I'm not a... Type A people like take over their schedules, and they control it, and they button it down. Uh, and Sabbath may impact those people differently, but I'm a person that just kind of like sliding through life, hoping that I don't like fall in a hole somewhere. Um, and So one of the things that Sabbath has done for me is it has rearranged my my relationship with time in general. Okay, 24-7, when you live the exact same way 24-7, there's there's very few reference points for what's going on. Your time becomes sort of, for me, like disoriented. There's no holy time. And holy, I don't mean like super spiritual. I just mean like set apart special different container of time. And for us, for me personally, I think for our family, this setting aside one day out of the week has become a keystone of change for how I count the days of my week and how I understand a week. You know, I read, I can't remember, I tried to find where I originally read it, but this, the Jews don't, didn't have names for days. They didn't count Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They didn't have ways to name days. Instead, all of the days were named based on their relationship to the Sabbath. So it was like three days to the Sabbath, two days to the Sabbath, one day to the Sabbath. Sabbath, one day from the Sabbath, two days from the Sabbath, three days from the Sabbath, and it would, this, the Sabbath becomes the center by which all the other days are counted. And I've actually begun to feel that in the rhythm of our life. We practice Sabbath Friday night, 6 o'clock until sometime midday on Saturday, depending on how long we can keep the boys engaged in what we're trying to do. <laughs> it varies from week to week. Um, but I have felt the organization of my week around this time. The way that things are related to it. It becomes a fixed point for me of, or it has become a fixed point of wholeness and restoration, defragging as I said last week. Um, and that becomes an important way that helps me organize what my days are for. It changes how I feel about Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday evening and Thursday morning. It's, our Fridays are now oriented on getting the things done in the house that we need to get done for the week, so that we can have space to rest and receive wholeness. and restoration. And so what what has come of that is that the days of the week, for me, are slowly, and this is a small process, are now ordered around the heaven that is the middle of the practice of Sabbath. And it's changed the way I think about time. It's changed the way I think about days. and So in some ways, this is a pushback against um, my previous thought, which was that I could just kind of Sabbath in little bits and pieces throughout the week. Well, I have my time here, and my time here, and and that's thinking about Sabbath very much in terms of what it is, but not in terms of the time that it is. Sabbath is about time and when. So if you don't set aside one in seven, you miss a primary benefit of what this is all about. So that's the first thing. It's changing my relationship with, with time. Second, it's, it's changing how I feel about my limits. I'm a Enneagram 5. Lem's not here, so I can talk about the Enneagram without fear of reprisal. Enneagram 5 is a, if you know the Enneagram, it's a classification system to help us understand ourselves. Enneagram 5s like to know things, intellectually driven. I'm a person that wants to know everything. I like to learn everything. I'm gonna understand everything, okay? If I'm gonna go away for like a one-night conference, I'm gonna spend 35 hours trying to find an Airbnb. Because I don't want to pick the wrong Airbnb. Right, I want to know and control and understand everything. And so my greatest fear is being incompetent. Just ask Kristen about the last time I was trying to go somewhere and I got like the directions wrong. There is nothing that makes me angrier than than being incompetent. Like a single wrong turn will set me off for 24 hours. Like, I lose my mind when I feel incompetent. And so I spend most of my days trying to avoid feeling incompetent. This is my God. This is what I'm trying. This is how I produce value in myself, is to make sure that I'm not competent. And it's that moment when I turn off my computer, and I turn off my phone, and I say, I'm not gonna learn anything else for the next 14, 18 hours. You know what that does to me? <laughs> It changes me. I'm now having to embrace a limit that I've spent most of my time and energy trying to avoid. And so this entire practice for me has been in some ways about embracing the incompetence of Sabbath practice. The lack of productivity. I can't know that. I can't fix that. I can't learn that right now. I'm just gonna be here. I'm gonna be whatever I am. However much I know right now, it's it's enough. And at first this, this felt super weird. (laughs) It felt very scary. I hated it. I wanted to, I needed to look that, that up. I needed the home stuff, the home project, the car, what, what, all the things. For me it's less about doing and more about knowing, understanding, that trip planning. It felt weird. And so when I made a rule that said, no, I'm not going to do that on this day, I've actually begun to revel in, in my limit a little bit. I don't know as much as I could know, and that's okay. (laughs) That's hard for me to stomach. It's become a little bit delightful to be released from that, from that burden. I'm going to share this quote. I have three three quotes here from Heschel, because they're just all really good. Um, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. This is from Exodus chapter 20, and then he says this. Is it possible for a human being to do all his work in six days? does not our work always remain incomplete? What the verse means conveys this, rest on the Sabbath as if all your work were done. And doing that has allowed me to look at my limits and find deep joy in them, the limits on my time, the limits on my knowledge. I feel a lot less angsty about the things I can't do or be for you as people or our church or for my family. I can't solve all your problems. I can't answer all your calls. 24 more hours on this sermon would make it a heck of a lot better. (laughs) But it's okay. It's okay. Whatever is done, whatever I know, whatever I don't know, it's enough. And I actually began to feel that in my bones over the last year and a half. Third, and related to that, is changing how I relate to work. Right? The Sabbath is not about doing nothing. The whole question of stopping work that's led the Pharisees to this very complicated question about what classifies as work. What should you and shouldn't you do? And Jesus basically just dispatches that and says, hey, that's the wrong question. (laughs) It's not about the what, it's about the why and the how. Right, what we're resting from is not action and activity, but it's from toil. You're resting from have to, so that you can get to. And that's how we've structured our time, our practices. Resisting have to's and embracing get to's. And now what it's done for me is I start to notice the get-tos throughout the week that I don't normally notice. When I started looking at buying a Jeep, you know, you've done this before. You're like, I'm gonna buy this car. And now all of a sudden you're like, holy cow, there's a lot of those cars on the road. They just appeared all of a sudden because you didn't notice them. Now that I'm spending multiple hours every single week only doing get-tos, I go back to Tuesday and Thursday and Sunday, and I start to notice and experience the get-tos that God has given me throughout the week. And instead of only experiencing my work as painful and hard and annoying and bad and grueling, I'm starting to see that work is—we were made for work. Work is part of rest. Go and read Genesis chapter 2. Work is part of rest. The problem is not work, but toil and anxiety in that work. And as we rest from it and learn that work is good, we can begin to experience work as productive and helpful and fruitful and learn to embrace it. And I felt that. Two more. Sabbath has changed my level of of gratitude. (laughs) In spending time just enjoying the things God has made, I have found less distress, less complaining, less self-pity in my heart. I was telling somebody the other day, self-pity, you know what self-pity is when you feel bad for yourself. I think this is the primary thing that is, that Taylor Swift has used to sell all for music. Like, if you listen to Taylor Swift's music, the number one emotion you're gonna get out of Taylor Swift is self-pity. And I think we identify with that. That's why people love it. Because if somebody as great as her can feel self-pity, then it must mean that I'm okay, too. But the self-pity doesn't lead to wholeness. (laughs) It leads to complaining and arguing and focusing on what's bad and what's wrong. Heschel says it this way, Who could feel distressed? when gazing at glimpses of eternity except to feel startled at the vanity of being distressed. And I honestly have begun to feel that. When you're tasting something, so when you're in the middle of eating a bowl of ice cream, everything's right with the world. It's hard to complain. And that's what this is like. When you spend time receiving the goodness of God on a regular basis, it's much harder to complain. It's much harder to to miss the blessings of God. It's one of the things we've done with the boys is, they, they like their like fizzy drinks, like Izzy's, or even just sparkling water, or chocolate milk. And we're like, you can have chocolate milk on the Sabbath. You know why? Because the Sabbath is a time to receive good things from God. We want, we want the boys to feel like Sabbath is the best day of the week, because it is. And so we give them their fizzy drinks. They they talk about, Monday will come, and they'll be like, hey, this is the drink I'm going to drink on Friday. Think about that. Think about the formative influence of that on the boys understanding the goodness of God in the world instead of complaining. It's increased my gratitude, and I see it seeping into the other days of my week. And finally, it's changing my longing for wholeness. Because when I stop to taste it, Stop focusing on what's broken about the world and taste. Get to get in this little oasis of of goodness. It starts to train my senses for it. Train my taste. You know something you first, when you first, <laughs> when I first tasted coffee, I spit it out because it's so terrible, and now you go into a coffee shop, and like you'll see on the sign, it's like, do you want the Costa Rican? We taste cocoa beans and plum. You know, like there's all these nuanced flavors in coffee, but you have to taste it for a long time to get them. And that's what, I've, that's what I've begun to think is that tasting the goodness of God takes time and energy to understand it, to appreciate it, to be able to, to, to see it, to long for it, to understand that this practice is, is, a, is a testimony to, to hope, to the fact that one day wholeness and goodness are coming to fill the world. Final quote from Heschel. Unless one learns how to relish the taste of Sabbath while still in this world, unless one is initiated into the appreciation of this eternal life, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. Sad is the lot of him who arrives inexperienced, and when led to heaven has no power to perceive the beauty of the Sabbath. That's one to take home and ponder. Sabbath as hope in eternal life, tasting and seeing that God is, is good. These are just some of my examples. I wanted you to hear that from me, my own process, my own struggle. It's a journey. So today, as we finish this, this is not the last time you're going to hear about this from me. The last time that you hear about this from me will be when I die, you fire me, or you leave this church. That will be the last time you hear from me about this. But I'm asking you, urging you, exhorting you, begging you, plant yourself by the Sabbath stream. Do it. Try it. It's not easy. It's countercultural. It's not normal. It's very disruptive. You turn your phone off like a weirdo. Who does that? You <laughs> plant yourself in the stream of life and allow that stream to flow into the rest of your life, bringing renewal and wholeness to the other parts of your broken life. And this is a journey. It's part of the journey of faith. It takes practice. You have to be creative about how to do it. You have to be flexible. We've tried things, and then we've been like, well, that doesn't help us lead to wholeness. So we abandon that, and we try something different. Wherever you are now is okay. I just want to invite you to take another step. From the time that I began to hear about this and decided that I was going to try to implement it in my life, to when I could say I was actually practicing, it was probably two years. It takes a long journey. i want to invite you. Paul Paul actually says in, in, I think it's in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, do not let anyone, or Romans, Romans 14, do not let anyone judge you for a Sabbath day. Okay, not practicing Sabbath does not make you a bad person any more than not praying every single day makes you a bad person. But that doesn't stop me from telling you that praying every day and reading the scriptures and practicing Sabbath are really extremely good for you. And I I want you to hear that. So this is it. This is Psalm chapter 1. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Do you want to be that person? Do you want to have that resilience and that faithfulness and that fruitfulness? Come to Jesus and receive rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time when we can come and be together, when we can...